We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, so go ahead and open up your Bibles there to that Old Testament book. It's kind of nearby Proverbs and Song of Solomon, so uh, make sure that you turn to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes so we can be together as we enter into this time of fellowship in God's Word. We're expecting Him to, uh, to speak to us today. He does that through His Word, through the eternal Scripture that is without error, which is always relevant, that is always prepared to guide us and direct us just how we needed to be guided. So let's have that word in front of us today. <clears throat> All right. In chapter uh, 3, the final verses of that chapter, Solomon was able to resolve a great intellectual dilemma by proclaiming that there is a time and a season for everything that happens under heaven. Solomon has clearly proclaimed that God is sovereign over all things. He is in control. Nothing happens in this world apart from His perfect will. But how is that compatible with the obvious fact that the world over which God is sovereign seems to contain a great deal of injustice still? If God is sovereign, then why does He allow injustice and oppression to persist? The preacher of Ecclesiastes has reasoned through this apparent problem and has drawn the conclusion that though there is injustice in the world, God is allowing it for a purpose. There will be a time and a season for perfect justice to be enacted, and no sin will go unpunished. All accounts will be paid in full before the Lord God. But that time of perfect justice is not right now. That season has yet to come. Injustice is the natural consequence of our collective disobedience to God. And since this injustice teaches us the very sad state of living apart from God, it plays a part in God's master plan to draw us near to Himself again. God allows injustice for a, a time so that when we see unchecked wickedness in the world, it will give us a clear picture of what life apart from the authority and the rule of God is really like. This inequity tests us. It asks us, is this what we really want? Do we want to be in charge of our own lives apart from the rule of a perfect and loving God? Even if it means that wickedness will prevail. Even if it means that we're going to have to suffer wrong as a result of our wandering from truth. The presence of this injustice and this oppression, though it is difficult for us to bear, presses us towards Christ. It helps us to see the greater peace that we can have when we surrender our heart and will to Him instead of trying to live independently from God and determine for ourselves what our life is going to be like. So injustice has a purpose. But injustice still hurts. Oppression still breaks the heart. So while Solomon has helped us to see the intellectual reasons that God allows injustice in his world, he still needs to wrestle with the emotional dilemma of this injustice. This reality that human beings have to deal with oppression, with unfairness, with inequity, and these conditions can have a devastating impact on the heart. When you're ministering to a person who is stuck out on the streets, maybe you see somebody in need and you just start to talk with them, you strike up a conversation, you might be able to counsel with them. You might be able to learn their story a bit. You probably could even come up with some very reasonable explanations as to why that individual is struggling with homelessness, why they don't have a place to live, what perhaps got them to the state that they are stuck in. 
It might be factors out of their control. They lost their job, couldn't find another. It could be the effects of substance abuse. It could be the downfall of, of mental instability. It might be the scarcity of jobs in their area. And so you might be able to help them to see just what got them there on the streets that day. But that knowledge doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, when you lay down in your warm bed under shelter with a full belly and you prepare to go to sleep, they are curled up in the back seat of their car. They are hoping that they don't get robbed. They are praying that their car doesn't get ticketed and impounded. There may be reasons for people's hardship, but the explanation of why doesn't necessarily minister to the emotional hardship that that person is going through. The fact that injustice serves a greater purpose does not cancel out the anguish that comes when real humans in real-time experience real injustice. Just because God can use injustice to open our eyes to our need for Him, that does not mean that we should embrace justice, injustice rather. It doesn't mean that we should respond to injustice coldly as just a, a fact of life or that we should deal with it without compassion. And so in verses 3, uh, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 today, Ecclesiastes will show us that injustice is an unavoidable reality, but we are to minister in love to those who suffer from it and sincerely long for the true justice that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today, starting a new chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3, just a short section that we'll be dealing with this morning. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Heavy passage that the Lord has ordained for us to be examining today with our whole hearts and our whole minds. In chapter 3, verse 16, Solomon was upset that in the very places where one should expect to find justice, injustice was indeed thriving. He had in view the institutions that we depend on to secure justice for us. But here in chapter 4, his focus broadens from the injustices that we see in governments and rulers and authorities to expand past all the oppressions that are done under the sun. While the powers that be do contribute to the problem, injustice is not just the result of bad government. It is a product of the sin nature that every human being is born with. Every man's sin contribute to the injustice of the world that we live in. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul can say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a universal problem for us. God is not only pouring out wrath of judgment upon corrupt kings and governments here. He is condemning the sinfulness of each and every person who has disobeyed His law and rebelled against Him. Therefore, the solution, the solution to oppression is not a better government. 
or some man-made utopia with perfect laws. There is no such haven on earth. If we hope to see a change in our world where justice is done on a more consistent and regular basis, then there needs to be a way to change not only laws and policies and economies, there must be a way to effectively change the heart of man who is ultimately responsible for perpetuating the injustice that dwells in the earth. So Solomon, the preacher, looks around to see this widespread injustice and it moves him. It affects him to his core. Now keep in mind that Solomon is observing the state of the world right during Israel's heyday. This is politically the best season that Israel has ever seen. Abraham's descendants will never have it better than the time that Solomon is reigning, at least until redemption in heaven is realized. There was not much war. David had put to rest all of the battles that that had threatened the sovereignty of Israel, and so Solomon was enjoying peace. There was progress all about in the nation of Israel. Resources were abundant. There was food and water. The Holy Land was thriving. And yet he looks around and sees that oppression was still an issue. What kind of oppression does Solomon see? He doesn't expand on it here. He doesn't elaborate and tell us the details. But we know what forms oppression usually takes, don't we? Oppression is usually seen when people with financial power exploit the poor so that they might become more and more wealthy. Oppression is seen when those who have power disregard the disadvantaged. They overlook their peril. The, the orphan and the widow and the elderly, those who are most vulnerable among us, are given no care and love as they should be given. We see oppression when law-breaking goes unpunished. And those with power are able to twist the laws to their advantage and don't have to pay the price for doing so. So the Holy Land was thriving, but oppression was still an issue for Solomon. He saw the heartache of those who are being pressed down. What leads to injustice? What is the cause of oppression in the land? It comes from an imbalance of power that is exploited by those who have the advantage but lack love. They have the power, but they don't have love for their fellow men. So they use their power in such a way that the love are, or the oppressed are pressed further down. Notice that by this definition, an imbalance of power itself is not the real problem. Some people have argued over the course of human history that that's the solution. We need to all have the same amount of power. And when power is equal, then all oppression will cease. But that is not necessarily the case. What would my Sunday be like, friends, if I got home with my family after church and I said, I sat my kids down, sat my wife down, and I said, listen, in an effort to put an end to oppression and injustice in the world, we're going to start right here in our home. We're officially all, from this point forward, on completely equal ground. I don't have authority over you anymore. And you don't have authority over me. I don't get to tell mommy what to do. And Adam is, in charge of the, is not in charge of the older kids just because he's older. We're all going to have to make decisions together as a family. We're all absolutely equal. And you have just as much say as I do. How would that play out in the Neves family home? Get the prayer request sheet ready. Right? 
First of all, my kids wouldn't even hear the end of the speech because as soon as I told them they could do whatever they want, they'd run away from that meeting and go up and start playing their video games. They might make a pit stop at the freezer to grab a carton of ice cream because that's all they'd be eating if I wasn't in charge anymore, right? You know, I've got good kids, but every child needs direction. Every child needs some authority over them. And that's not just true of children, is it? We need to be led. We need guidance and direction. Even when each individual is equally capable of, ru of ruling, they have the same intelligence, equivalent experience, all possess the same gifts and talents. If you could create an environment where everybody was on the same footing like that, it would be best for that group to still have one person who is designated as the leader or a group of people who are representative leaders over the others so that the group together would have Similar vision and goals. There would be unity. You wouldn't have a hundred people all going in different directions trying to establish what they think is best. So there will always be, friends, an imbalance in power. That's not a sin in and of itself. There's nothing really wrong with that. Think about the cosmic view of this. God will always be greater than man. God's goal is not to make us the same as him and put us on the same perfect level as he is. His goal is to, to bring us into his kingdom as we were designed to be brought in as worshipers, as those who love and reverence and are in awe of God. Authoritative structures are built in the very fabric of human existence. God designed people to operate in the, the subunit of families, right? Families do not function if the children, who obviously lack wisdom and experience, have as much say as the parents do. God has ordained that husbands should serve as heads of their family. Not that they are more important than their wives or their kids, but because in order for groups to function in a healthy way, there must be some order, some kind of authority. Even in the perfect environment of heaven, where all sin is gone, and there will be no more pain or shedding of tears, the triune God is ruling over all things there, right? And even in this picture of heaven that we see in Revelation, there is a throne room with 24 elders, some kind of a ruling body, who seat on thrones around the primary throne of God. We are told that some will be given crowns and recognized as particularly faithful in heaven. It's not a universal participation trophy that everyone's going to get in heaven. We'll all be perfectly content and happy there, but there will be some authority structure when we get to heaven. So the perfect environment in heaven will have a structure where not every being is absolutely equal in authority and role and responsibility. Therefore, in order to see the solution to oppression, we've got to look beyond a total equalization of power. We've got to look to something more significant. <clears throat> Having to deal with the existence of oppression can lead people to have a dangerous mindset, a dangerous misunderstanding of themselves. It is so very tempting to believe that our greatest opponent is that which is outside of ourselves rather than that which is within ourselves. I want us to think about this as we, as we contemplate the idea of oppression in the world. If we have an opponent who is pressing injustice upon us from the outside, it is so very easy to focus our contempt upon that opponent and build a case of blame against them, while at the same time forgetting that we too share personal responsibility for the sins of the world. 
The government becomes the main problem in life. Or the wealthy businessmen of the world who have all the money and don't want to share it with those of us who are in the lower classes become the biggest problem in our lives. Or the police force that doesn't follow the rules that it's supposed to enforce for us. Or the military that flexes its power over civilians instead of protecting them from danger, putting them in harm. Or whatever race has the most influence in a culture is seen as the oppressing race over the other races. Or the older established generations are viewed as holding back the younger generations who have less influence and are less resourced. And not to say that those aren't real situations that need to be dealt with. There is always going to be some kind of resentment in the world towards the evil without But when we speak of injustice, we must keep in mind that the greatest injustice is not perpetrated man against man. The greatest injustice is perpetrated by each of us against a holy and perfect God who loved us into existence, who desires a fellowship with us, a God to whom we have all, each one of us, turned our back in sin. God's word clearly teaches us that there are two great commandments that stand out head and shoulders above the other commandments. And in fact, they are the two commandments upon which all the other commandments really hang. The first of those is that we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with the totality of our strength. The second commandment, which is below the first, is that we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So, the greatest command, if we are to love God with everything we've got, then we would desire to follow His command. Then we would trust Him the way we should. We would be a people of of absolute faith. And then the rest of the commandments would fall into line. But since we don't do that perfectly, God has to give us other instructions which guide us and, and govern our lives. And so He gives us the second great command, which is make sure that you love one another as God is loving you. And as you so naturally love yourselves, our greatest peril comes not from the violation of the second command, but from the violation of the first. When we fail to love the Lord God who made us all, then we create life's greatest and most pressing problem. We separate ourselves from God. No one forces that upon us. We are not oppressed into rebellion against God. We choose it freely. Our personal sin is no one's fault but our own. And God reveals to us through his word that the consequences of sin is death and eternal separation from the one who created us. Because we have learned to tolerate sin in our own lives, the world has become an environment where the most advantaged will of course exploit the weaker among us because sin abounds. But that is a sin of the second magnitude. It is a violation of the command to love our neighbor. And that command is being violated for the primary reason that we have all violated the first and greatest command. We have refused to love our God. When we turn our back on the ultimate protector of truth, when we turn our back on the one perfect judge who has declared what is right and what is wrong, then our whole concept of justice will become corrupt and unfair. It will become skewed to our own personal advantage. And isn't that the heart of injustice? When we try to manipulate the world in such a way 
that everything works to our good instead of to the good of God and others. Any solution to oppression and injustice must address the most important problem, that our sin has alienated us from the truth and justice of God Almighty. And of course, friends, that is only accomplished through the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ has given his perfect life as a loving and graceful sacrifice so that sinners like us might be redeemed from our sin and might see what true justice really is, that is the solution to injustice in the world. That is the solution that we need to preach and proclaim from the mountaintops. Here in Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon does not present the solution to oppression. So we will have to look elsewhere in Scripture for that. But before we do, we need to see that oppression affects Solomon in a personal way. His observation of injustice and oppression is not just an academic exercise here. He's not just stating the facts. In verses 2 and 3, we see how the sad reality of this injustice and oppression leads the preacher to a depressing evaluation of man's state. It would be better, according to verses 2 and 3, that he had never been born. It would have been better if he never had to look upon this world that does such injustice to God and man one to another. We need to remember as we read these tough verses that much of the book of Ecclesiastes is speculative. It is one man's, one man's journey. He's working through problems. He's coming up with possible solutions, some of which are valid and some of which need adjusting. So we are on, in process here with Solomon as he's working through these difficult questions of life. Not everything the preacher says through the course of the book should be received as gospel truth. Note here in verses 2 and 3, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Solomon's despair is borderline suicidal here. Does God include these verses in the book of Ecclesiastes to prove to us that it would be better to have never lived than to live in a sinful world? No, he doesn't give these verses to us that we might have a devastated mindset of what the world is like. The first words of verse 2 are, notice, and I thought. So the preacher here is, is indicating to us what he's thinking. He's thinking out loud. He's speculating here. He's being transparent about how he emotionally and intellectually responds to the heart-wrenching oppression that he witnesses in the world. He's not saying, you should think this way. He's saying, in view of this hardship, this is how I thought. So we, not, we, we cannot think that the unborn is more fortunate than the living. Otherwise, that would totally re, redefine the way we see about uh, abortion. We would, we would almost celebrate the fact that children didn't have to enter into this mess, but we know the opposite is true, that every life is a gift from the Lord God. We, we need to have a reverence for life, an appreciation for what God has given to us, even though this life is sometimes a train wreck, even though we see hardship and suffering about us. We cannot allow the hopelessness of life under the sun to drive us to these kinds of suicidal temptations. <clears throat> In the next few chapters... We will have to keep a discerning eye as to whether the preacher is speaking about life under the sun, which is how life goes when you're living apart from God, or whether he's really talking about life lived in faith in God. Having set up this dichotomy for us already, we should begin to be able to notice and recognize the contrast. It should be somewhat obvious to us when he's speaking about one or the other. So it appears here that as the, the preacher is speaking about 
the depression of a world filled with injustice, that he's seeing life apart from God. If there was no hope for man to live life with a restored relationship with God, if there was no hope for real justice, then a case could be made that it is indeed better to not be born than to live as an eternal rebel to God. But there is hope, and we must cling to that hope. We begin the series by, by looking at the end of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember back then? the first part of chapter 1, we looked at the end of Ecclesiastes to see that the best thing that man can do as a result of all this intellectual wrestling is that he, can, he needs to learn to fear God and keep the commandments of God. He, his mind needs to be turned back to the authority and the truth of God that he is a faithful and, and competent king. And surely we know that God has made a way where there seemed to be no way. He did so by sending Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin on the cross. And so we don't have to have this same kind of mindset, but we can still learn from Solomon's expression in verses 2 and 3. In this moment of evaluation, he feels the despair of the oppressed so vibrantly that he comes to lament life itself. And an unsolvable problem can lead one to feel as though giving up is the best choice. Now you might hear echoes of Job here in, in Solomon's words. Job, if you remember, was an Old Testament figure who was faithful to the Lord God, was a good and, 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 and diligent man, a man of truth, and yet the Lord allowed him to have all the blessings of life stripped away so that it might be proven that the thing that really gives Job joy is his faith and trust in the Lord God. But Job went through hard times in that process, and there were times when his faith wavered. Job 3, verses 16 through 19 says, Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So you see, Job had a, a similar mindset when he was ter terribly afflicted by circumstances of life that ruined everything that he loved except for his relationship with God. When we take our eyes from the Lord, this kind of darkness can cast a great shadow upon our perception of life. For those who struggle with depression, clinging to Christ can be a matter of physical life and death. We can become so wrapped up in the temporary hopelessness of being overwhelmed with our problems that we might feel that that life is not worth living. And so there's value here in seeing Solomon get to that point. How can we identify that? How can we deal with it? And how can we minister to those who find themselves swept up in that terribly strong current? In the three verses that we're looking at this morning, Solomon does not share a solution to the overall problem of oppression. He only points out the magnitude of the problem. And then by inference helps us to see that there must be something done for those who are struggling. We saw from the end of chapter 3 that injustice is a necessary condition of a fallen world. So we will not solve injustice here. We will not be able to eliminate oppression completely so long as man is free to sin. So what do we do? How do we deal with the great despair that comes over us when we see the oppression of man all around us? Two things, I believe, are suggested in this passage. First of all, we need to strive to show compassion to those who are oppressed. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 
Solomon takes notice of one of the greatest heartaches of the oppressed. The fact that they are unheard, the fact that they are uncared for, the great loneliness that they experience in their hardship. When we expand our subject matter beyond Ecclesiastes, and we consider what else God's Word tells us about oppression, we can see that one of the heaviest burdens that accompanies the plight of the oppressed is a feeling of isolation, a feeling of, of loneliness. Consider how the following verses express the feeling of loneliness in the face of, of, of oppression. In the Psalms, for example, David finds himself battling against the unloving leadership of King Saul, and the efforts of many within his kingdom later who disregard God's anointed David and try to overthrow his throne. And so listen to his expression of sadness in the face of oppression and injustice. David says in Psalm 142, uh, 142.4, he says, Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been able to identify with what David is expressing here in the Psalms? He feels like there is no one there for him. He feels like in this vast sea of suffering that he is all by himself, that no one can relate to what he's feeling or experiencing, that no one is there to, to offer him relief. And then further on in Psalm 69, 20, David says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. <clears throat> I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. The Apostle Paul shares in the New Testament with a fellow elder, 2 Timothy, uh, expresses to us in chapter 4 this kind of loneliness that Paul feels in doing the right thing, in serving God as an apostle, as a church planter, as a preacher of the truth, but still feeling like he's persecuted for it, still feeling like he's, he's having to defend himself on every side, even from people within the body of Christ. And so 2 Timothy 4, 16-17 says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He still has compassion on those who are not caring for him the way he needs to be cared for. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul shows to us here an ideal scenario. He is oppressed, he is experiencing injustice, and there is no one to care for him. Yet the testimony of God's love for Paul is so strong in his life that he doesn't necessarily need the help of the other believers to encourage But that strength is rare among us, isn't it? It is far more likely that when we as mortal people go through struggles and hardships that we desperately want someone to put their hand into our hand and to at least walk with us while we endure what God has ordained for us to endure. For those who are oppressed, there is a great yearning to be understood and to be cared for. Those who are being mistreated by others in power cry out for compassion. We can see how much it impacts the preacher of Ecclesiastes. His heart aches so fully for those who are oppressed that he despairs of life. Does the oppression of the weak in our society impact us to such a great extent? Do we have that kind of oppression when we look upon our own community and see those who are hurting, those who are downtrodden, those who are disadvantaged, those who've been taken advantage of? Solomon's compassion is 
is really quite remarkable here when you think about it. Because think about the state of his life. Who could have oppressed Solomon? He didn't really have to worry about oppression. He was the most powerful man in the land. He had the wisdom of God that helped him to discern when someone was lying to him. He was blessed beyond measure. So it would have been very easy for Solomon to just be thankful for all the abundance that God had given to him and just ignore or overlook the hurting of others. But he doesn't do that here. His empathy is clearly for the suffering of other people around him. You don't have to have gone through exactly what somebody else has gone through in order to express compassionate love to them. Did you know that? Perhaps you know somebody who's been the victim of sexual violence. Do you have nothing to say to them unless you've also been through the same thing? No. They don't need someone who's walked exactly the same steps that they've walked. They need someone who loves them. And here we see a Solomon who's not oppressed, who's not suffering from injustice himself, and yet he sees the hurt of others and he's able to empathize with what they feel in their situation. He's allowing himself to have compassion, true compassion, on what they are dealing with. So we've got to combat oppression by committing ourselves to having compassion on others. Compassion for those who are suffering at the hands of people who have power but lack godly love. Consider the great lengths that God has gone to in order to show us authentic compassion, in order to strive with his own people. He has not left us alone in our despair, even though so much of our heartache is our own fault. He has instead determined to dwell with us. Even before Christ, think about this, friends. Have you ever studied the tabernacle? You ever studied this holy tent that God instructed Moses to build as a, as a locus of worship for the Lord God Yahweh. That tent was built in a specific way, according to specific commands, to do what? To give the people of Israel a physical, tangible proof that the presence of God dwelt among them. They could go to that tent and they could offer a sacrifice and remember that God had covenanted with Moses to make them a special people, a people to worship him and be identified with him. He cared for Israel. He desired to be near. And how much more so is that expressed in Christ? When the time had come, God sent his own son to leave the comfort of heaven and dwell in the sinfulness of man with us not stained by sin, but having to endure the same consequences of sin that you and I often have to endure. Jesus came and lived on this earth. He walked the earth like we walk. This is a God who wants to be near. Can you see the compassionate heart of God that does not stay far apart at, at arm's reach from us, but comes and dwells with the ones that he has made? And now, in the radical reality of the church age, God has gone even further. Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who have repented of their sin and said, Lord God, I need you to save me. I cannot do it myself. I trust you, Jesus. What has God done for them? He has put the Holy Spirit into their hearts. We don't need a tabernacle anymore. There is no temple in Jerusalem because it's unnecessary. The very presence of God walks with us now. Talk about compassion. Talk about care for what the Lord, the, the Lord God has and shows for a people who are so far below him and yet he desires to be near to them. Friends, you might not be a skilled counselor. 
You might not know the Bible inside out and backwards, and so you might be intimidated to counsel someone who's going through struggles, and that's all right. Part of compassion is not providing necessarily all the answers. Part of compassion is simply being present for those whose hearts are broken. Presence helps a person who is suffering through injustice and oppression to know that they are not alone, that God is loving them directly through the Spirit, if they are a believer, but also indirectly through the people that He has redeemed and brought near to encourage them and lift their head. There may be suffering, but those individuals are loved through their suffering and oppression. And that's why it's so important to be a part of God's church, friends. We come to worship the Lord God, and so many times I hear people say, I can worship the Lord God on my own. Okay, you can. You can worship God on your own. You know that if you were on a deserted island somewhere, it's not like you couldn't experience fellowship with the Lord God. But what has God done for you? He has built for himself a church made out of living stones. Each one of us is called in the book of Peter a living stone within which is the Holy Spirit that coming together would become the house of God. And our brothers and sisters encourage us. They see what we cannot see when we are in the deep pit of despair. They open our eyes for us and encourage us and help the light shine in when we can't do that for ourselves. So we need the church, friends. We need to be involved in the church, not just to receive, but also to keep our eyes on one another so that when we see a brother or sister who's down and oppressed, that we might be light for them, that we might bring the light of Christ to lighten their their darkness. There are ways that we should strive to help people obtain justice. There are things that we need to do to help solve some of these problems oppressions in the world and some of these problems of inequality and inequity. But before any of that is done, let's ask ourselves the important question, are we loving people enough to dwell in compassionate ways with them? Do we hurt for those who have hurt? Do we have a righteous anger for the oppressed who have been pressed down by others? And do we come alongside them or do we simply complain about what they're experiencing? How different would the conversation be if we were authentically compassionate for the sufferings of those who are unlike ourselves. A truly compassionate heart would not exploit others, would it? If we had compassionate hearts, when we do happen to have power over somebody else, we wouldn't oppress them in the first place. We wouldn't dare exploit them because we have compassion for what they're going through. Exploitation comes by seeing others as less important than we ought to see them. It comes from treating them as if they do not bear the image of God. So a commitment to a compassionate attitude towards our fellow man not only aids them through their time of injustice, it helps prevent us from enacting injustice and oppression on others in the first place. So we need to be a people of compassion. The compassion was the element that was lacking in verse 1 that caused the preacher of Ecclesiastes to be so downtrodden in verses 2 and 3. And the second thing that we can do, friends, is we need to help the oppressed to see what their heartache and despair will not allow them to see. Oppression, injustice, and suffering can lead to a distorted view of the world that we live in, especially when it is compounded by isolation, especially when we feel like no one cares about what we're going through or no one can identify and relate to us. Here is a a typical progression that someone goes through when they're feeling alone and oppressed. They face the reality that something is gravely wrong in their life. It makes them sad. 
It makes them hurt and they struggle to get out of that sadness and out of that hurt. They see how all of their efforts to solve the problem of hurt and despair fall short. They aren't able to solve all the problems in their lives and so then they begin to wonder if there is a way to fix the heartache and the despair. They begin to possibly doubt the God that has saved them. And they begin to instead resent Him. I didn't ask for this. Why is a God who loves me letting me go through something so difficult, something that I cannot bear? This is the worldly grief that we hear about in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This worldly grief can be a seriously damaging uh, element of our lives. Even the faithful can fall into these ruts of broken thinking. A personal relationship with God is not some silver bullet that renders depression totally powerless. We are still in the process of sanctification, friends. We are still being made whole. And until that is complete, until we die or Christ returns to receive us to Him, we're going to be subject to times of despair and sadness. We will have to endure that. And we don't always endure it well by ourselves. Sometimes we cannot see the grace that God has given to us in the middle of our suffering. So what means has God provided to help us battle this kind of twisted mentality that values death even over life? He has given us clarity. And that clarity is found in the word that you hold in your lap right now. We need to seek the true things of God, the things that He has proclaimed and declared to be right and good, and we need to help others who cannot do that on their own to see that truth when they're, when they're so uh, it, captured by their own depression that they can't seem to see it for themselves. Remember the words of Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, where Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is described there? Paul is describing a, a mentality, a mindset, in which we speak the truth to one another, where we declare the clarity that the Scripture has given to us. This is the light in the darkness, friends. And so when we, when we share Scripture with one another, when we point people to the true things that God has declared to us through the prophets and the fathers and the apostles, then we bring clarity to the confusion. We bring light to the darkness. The answer to injustice is not to hide from the hurt as so many try to do. The Pharisees did this. They did that by hiding from their true sinfulness, by covering it up with a whole bunch of religious activity. They didn't want to deal with their need for a savior, so they acted as though their obedience could save them. The drunkard does this, doesn't he? The drunkard or the addict, they medicate their pain with frivolity. They medicate their pain by masking it with a chemical that makes them not think about the hurt for a time. The man-pleaser, the person who is so concerned about what everybody else thinks about them, does this as well. So long as I am accepted and well-liked by people, then I won't have to deal with the brokenness within me. Friends, that's not the answer. We've got to see reality for what it really is. Is our hurt whether it be sin or oppression or injustice, is it really an unhealable wound? Maybe you can't heal it, but that doesn't mean that God can't heal it. Whatever we are struggling against 
can be solved by the Lord God. He is greater than us, and His resources are much more vast than our own. If we try to cover the problem with distraction and ignorance, we ensure that it's only going to grow worse. Reality shows no patience to fantasy. And so we must speak the truth to each other in love and remind one another when we can't see it ourselves. I need a brother to come and remind me that things are going to be okay, that the Lord God is indeed sovereign, and that there is a time this season for everything under heaven. There is a time to mourn. There is a time to die. There is a time for hardship, but there's also a time for resolution. The answer, friends, is not to just work harder. Some people think that their oppression will only be solved if they pour themselves into the solution. When we double down on our own abilities, we fall twice as hard the next time we falter. And there will be a next time because we are imperfect human beings. We cannot do it perfectly on our own. So our temporary victories do nothing to fix the systemic problem of the imperfection which plagues the world and will until the return of Jesus Christ. The answer is not to be found within ourselves. It can only be found in the grace of God, which is preached to us in every page of, holy, of God's holy word. So comfort those who are oppressed by telling them the truth. Preach the gospel one to another. The greatest comfort that we can give is to reset a sufferer's sights upon the sovereignty of the Creator God. If God is going to allow injustice to remain in this world as a test, as we learned last week, to teach us how much we need to turn from ourself and to cling to God, then one of the most helpful things that we can do to one who is suffering from injustice to help them see their need to turn from the self and to cling to God is preach the truth to them. Help them to remember that God is greater than their suffering and that He has suffered infinitely more than they have on their behalf, for their blessing, for their benefit. Reflecting on uh, one last time on Solomon's dark evaluation that we see in verses 2 and 3, he says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then we could go on to say further, but better still is he who has realized the true weight of sin, he who has tasted the sting of sinfulness and oppression and injustice, and yet sees Jesus Christ as the answer to that injustice. More blessed is he who has walked through the heartache of life and has experienced the victory of Jesus Christ by placing their faith in Him. There is no greater hope, friends. And no injustice or oppression can overcome that amazing truth. I am so blessed from time to time to be able to minister to people in my congregation who are going through hardship and trial and pain. But I dearly need also those times when others minister to me in my heartache and pain. There have been times when I've been struggling, when my heart has been so heavy and I, I felt so deeply burdened. And just when I feel like I can't take another step, someone in the congregation will send me a card or a letter or they'll just give me a phone call and remind me of how much I'm loved. There was a season a couple years ago when we lost some very dear people to us. And I can't tell you how many people reached out to me and said, Pastor, I know this must be so hard for you. Just know that you're being prayed for. And in my office is a thick file where I keep all those cards and all those correspondence and all those little letters. 
And when I'm down, when I am discouraged and it feels like the enemy is winning, I go and I read through that stack of encouragements and I let the body of Christ do what God has instructed the body of Christ to do. And you lift my head. You help me to understand the things that I have sometimes forgotten, that the God that we serve is a God of glory and grace, that he will not let us suffer without his eyes upon us, without an intention for what is, going, what is happening in our lives, what we're going through. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And when I forget that, I need others to remind me of it just as you do. So friends, though this small section of, of verses in some ways carries a lot of weight to it, and it feels a bit dark and depressing, it reminds us of the greater truth of the gospel and how we can minister to one another in love, no matter how dire this world might seem. Let's bow our heads and thank the Lord God for this passage. You have provided all we need, Lord God, and we are so very happy that you continue to bless us, you continue to keep us near to you, that you love us through a hardship. You don't allow us, Father, to be overcome to the point of defeat. And so I pray, Lord God, that for those of us who have been stuck in, in the pit of despair, Lord, that you would lift our heads today, that you would even use the brothers and sisters who are sitting near to those who are here today with the, with the, the lingering... Um, cloud of depression over their heads, that they might be lifted up today, God, that we would determine to help each other to see the light of Christ. There is truly none like you, Lord God, and the injustice of the world will not be solved by activism. It will not be solved by better legislation. It will not be solved by the right politician, unless that right politician be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, your Son, who will reign forever, the descendant of David, the fulfillment of prophetic promise. We eagerly await his return. We eagerly await that better country that does not suffer from the violence of injustice and oppression. But in the meantime, Lord God, your light still shines. And so we thank you, Lord God, for lifting our heads and for pointing our eyes back to where they belong. Lord God, take our eyes off of our hurt, put them on the cross, and help us to remember the victory that you've had over sin and death, and over every circumstance that threatens to steal our joy away. We thank you for all of these things. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.